This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how GM is driving clean energy, the $57 billion e-waste opportunity, how FedEx is going carbon neutral, and the challenges of finding sustainable vanilla. It's the flavor of the month, this week on 350. It's July 16th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Heather Clancy is off this week, but joining me from not very far away in Oakland is Green Biz Associate Editor, Jesse Klein. Hey, Jesse. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great. Thanks for stepping up and stepping in. Um, so you just moved uh, to Oakland, like I think last week. Uh, welcome, first of all, to my native city. <laughs> but talk a little bit about uh, your role at Green Biz. You've been with us for uh, writing for us for well over a year and a half. Uh, introduce yourself. I think this is uh, not your first time on Green Biz 350, but it's your first time co-hosting. Yeah, yeah. I, I did just move last weekend. I'm currently sitting on the ground because I have not built my desk yet. Um, that's the work from home life now. But yeah, I'm the associate um, editor and I work on food and agriculture and nature based carbon solutions, how we eat and how do we grow and how to make all that stuff better for for the environment and for our bodies. You also, in addition to food and ag, uh, and, and it's very much related, have written about carbon offsets. I think some terrific pieces about just the craziness of that market and, and, and how f- challenging it is for companies to navigate. Uh, what, what are some of the other topics? And, and we're going to get to your sustainable vanilla story in, in, in just a few minutes. But talk. what are some of the other topics that you're interested in pursuing or some of the other things that are exciting you right now? Yeah, I definitely want to dive into that carbon markets and, and offsets way more. Everyone I've talked to, every expert says it's about to, you know, that market's really about to pop off. And so really excited about what that means for, for companies and even what that means for governments and cities who are who are trying to go net zero as well. And I think other things I'm really excited about are just, um, you know, I have a, a bunch of vertical farming stories in the works and and what does that mean for for our food system? But also, what does that mean for our energy system? Because it's a huge energy suck on uh, to to grow that way. Yeah. So really thinking about the conversion of food and energy and carbon all in one is is really where I find the most passion and, and the nexus of all of that. Yeah, food, and you throw in water in that too. The food, energy, water nexus, and you've got. Uh... Uh, a thousand stories to write over the next few years. So we'll look forward to those coming up. But right now, what's coming up is the Week in Review. So 
So let's start today with General Motors um, and energy buying. They're doing a really remarkable thing, which is they partnered with Shell. Now you think of Shell, you think of oil. And of course, that's been their main stock and trade oil and gas. Uh, but uh, Shell is also one of the largest uh, energy traders of all kinds, including renewable electricity. And GM and Shell uh, have partnered. Uh, this is a, a story that our contributor Mike DeSocio wrote uh, this week to to offer GM suppliers renewable energy at competitive rates. Uh, Rob Threlkeld, a friend of ours who uh, heads the renewable energy buying at GM, said, uh, think of it like Costco. You go in there and buy in bulk. <laughs> he said, we're literally doing that with electricity. So when you start to buy in bulk, the prices come down. You can start to think about your margins differently. And that's where the scaling comes into play. So they're making that accessible to their suppliers, a lot of which are smaller, mid-sized companies who may not be able to afford this. So I, I'm really, I think this is just a really great program to help smaller firms and supply chain in general to decarbonize and scale up the renewable energy purchasing. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they're doing it in te Texas. And the reason that they're able to do it in Texas is because they've deregulated the energy market out there. So um, consumers actually have a choice of where they are buying their energy from. Yeah, uh, Texas is not the place. Well, it actually is the place for renewable energy, certainly for wind. But it also has this uh, deregulated market so that customers can choose much more easily their their energy providers. And so I think that in some ways, it does make a lot of sense to do this in Texas. Also, that happens to be where Shell is headquartered, at least in the US. They're based in Europe, uh, the main headquarters. And so this is, I think, just a really great example of, of what's possible when uh, through partnerships. Um, but let's talk about a different partnerships. And this is right up your alley, Jesse. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about Natura, the uh, Brazilian company that, uh, you know, is, is often spoken about as one of the most sustainable corporations in the world. And yet, at least in the United States, it's not that well known. Uh, they make uh, personal care products primarily, I believe. Um, and they've got some great approaches for how they work with uh, the source materials in the Amazon. Talk a little bit about what what this story and uh, that was uh, written by uh, Cecilia Keating from Business Green. Uh, what, what do you think about this? Yeah, you're definitely right that Natura has a reputation for being one of the most sustainable companies and isn't very well known, but they are well known in Brazil. They've been working and operating within the Amazon for 20 years and sourcing from 30 traditional communities out there. So they really know their stuff about how to work within the Amazon. And I think some, um, something they're doing that's that's really interesting is they're starting to line their products up with when the natural ingredients are available from the Amazon, sort of the way that, you know, I don't really buy strawberries in the winter because they don't taste good because they're not being grown very well. They're kind of doing that with, you know, non-produce products like perfume. So this perfume product that they have, they're only going to be offering it when the raw ingredients are available. And I think that's something that we really need to think about as we move towards a sustainable economy is, you know, maybe you just can't have everything all the time and you have to wait and be excited. You know, I get really excited in the summer for berries and maybe I'll be really excited for this perfume on the, you know, the couple months that it's available. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think about that kind of a business model. Yeah. Corn. 
That's for my what I get excited about every summer. Uh, I just <laughs> can't wait for corn season. Love me some fresh uh, ears of corn. Uh, I mean, yeah, this is uh, I think really interesting, I and mean, we're we're going to be talking more and more in 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 our profession and in the world of business around biodiversity and the value that brings to business and the risks, existential risks, uh, of of despoiling that and and the the rapid uh, extinction rate uh, of of and the, the loss of biodiversity. And this is a great model for how uh, a company is working really closely with indigenous tribes in the Amazon to make sure that it is sourcing raw materials in a way that is not only sustainable for the planet, but also uh, for those indigenous communities. And I think this, the point that Cecilia makes here is that it, it takes time, it takes commitment, it takes resources just to understand the community's priorities, the local community's priorities. And, and, and that's something that Natura has done. They've, they've gone deep into the communities to understand their needs and how they operate and investing in uh, millions of dollars into local communities. And so this is, um, you know, it, it is paying dividends uh, for them in terms of having a sustainable source for the a whole range of things, uh, plants, nuts, berries, and things, that it, it, spices and, and other ingredients that they use in their products. And, and I think this is going to start to become a model for how companies uh, take care of, of the natural resources, the natural capital that they rely upon for their products and services. Uh, there's some studies that said that, that roughly half of global GDP relies on nature. Uh, the, these plants and animals and, and, and minerals and other things that uh, nature provides us we have to take care of that or we're out of business. Yeah, and you talked about it paying dividends for the tribal communities, but it's actually also paying dividends for the environment because um, one of the trees, the Okuba tree, that uh, was originally being chopped down, Natura offered local communities three times more to harvest the tree's seeds, which have hydrating, hydrating properties for their um, seed butter. And they were able to remove the tree from the endangered species list. So, you know, they're just offering more money and, and, and ending deforestation of a certain tree. That's a, that's a win-win for both sides. Yeah. Another example of what happens uh, in the world of partnerships in sustainability. And that brings us to our third story that we're going to talk about right now, which is a, a story that uh, Heather Clancy did before she took off on the circular economics and the $57 billion e-waste uh, opportunity. It's writing about a new partnership between uh, Closed Loop Partners, an investment firm, and uh, ERI, which uh, used to stand for Electronics Recycling International. They're the largest IT recycling and refurbishment company in the U.S. Closed Loop Fund made a big investment in ERI and, and to how, how to collect not just more e-waste, but how do you then harvest that e-waste to get the glass and copper and gold and aluminum and, and, and all the different uh, other minerals and, and palladium and silver and lead that are contained therein and, and, and reuse them. Uh, Apple's been, uh, has set some goals that uh, they will make all their products using reclaimed materials. And you know, there's this huge market for that that's at least growing market for that. But there's this, also this uh, huge problem of e-waste that isn't going away anytime soon. In fact, I think it's getting worse and worse. 
Yeah, I think one thing that stuck out to me just as a, a fun anecdote was that vacuum cleaners are the biggest part of the e-waste stream today. And I would not have guessed that. But yeah, it's I mean, this problem is is the fastest growing waste stream beating out plastic. And and it's something as our world becomes increasingly more digital, we have to think about the things that are um, allowing that digitization to take place and how to create circular economies from that. Yeah. And a lot of the materials that's in the e-waste, things like nickel and cobalt and lithium and rare earths are also the exact same metals that are critical uh, in clean energy systems and batteries and you know wind turbines and electric vehicles and so many of the other parts of the, the, the clean and, and, and climate tech that we're all uh, trying to lean into. Um, and, and some of those, so there's also, huge, you know, even gets into national security issues because a lot of those, the, the rare earths, for example, and, and even lithium, vast amount of that is controlled uh, by China and other countries. Uh, we need to have our own sources of that. And the, the biggest source is just to mine the waste stream. So um, I think this is a, a another great partnership uh, showing what happens. Uh, companies work together at one plus one can equal 11. Well, Jesse, it's uh, great that you're here for multiple reasons, but one of them is this amazing story you did this week on sustainable vanilla. I think it's timed in part to vanilla harvest season, which starts this month, and you've been reporting on some of the new scrutiny that's been been put on sustainability for this ingredient. Uh, we all think of it as a flavor. Of course, vanilla also goes in a lot of cosmetics, perfumes, and other kinds of things. And, uh, and a whole range of companies, uh, Veda, L'Oreal, General Mills, so they're all revisiting the recipes that are uh, by which they're ensuring the sustainable and ethical production of vanilla. So uh, talk a little bit about this story. One of the things that jumped out for me was the synergistic relationship between vanilla cultivation and other agricultural practices. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so the experts I spoke with really believe that vanilla is a really sustainable crop because the vines grow as an extension of the forest habitat. You don't need to clear cut or do any fertilizers. It's really part of the ecology. And it uses the shade of the trees to grow and, and all that stuff. And, and we should hear from Don Seville, who's the co-director of the Sustainable Vanilla Initiative, to explain really why that's so exciting to him. Vanilla is pretty exciting because it's a no-input agroforestry crop, which means that no chemicals are needed and you can grow it with shade cover so it works as a, kind of a habitat extension. Uh, you can grow it in diverse structures with other crops, which is good for farmers and good for the environment. And it grows in some of the poorest areas of the world, so it's a great economic opportunity. Yeah, so he really thinks that investing in vanilla could actually decrease deforestation in Madagascar, where most of the vanilla that we um, use is produced, because it'll encourage farmers to, instead of clear-cutting that area to grow other crops, they can grow vanilla and get really you know, good money for it because the vanilla market you know, wavers between $200 and $400 per kilo for vanilla. And so it's it's really an opportunity to invest in the people in Madagascar and, and lift them out of poverty while also keeping that habitat intact. And there's also some social issues involved here, uh, child labor, for example. Yeah, most vanilla farms are run by really small rural families, you know, 
Don told me that it can take, you know, three to six days to canoe out to where the vanilla farms are. So, you know, they're, there's, you know, kind of figuring out that line between what is child labor and what is, you know, a kid helping out with the family business. And there was a, a loophole closed by the Obama administration um, that came into effect a couple years ago that's really having businesses look at this more closely because it closed a, a loophole that allowed foreign child labor to be used in products sold in the United States. So like any commodity, uh, there's price volatility with, with vanilla. And I imagine that must affect uh, the, the ability to maintain these kinds of sustainability initiatives and investments. Yeah, there's actually, it's, it's kind of twofold, to be honest. One is there's so little vanilla used in a lot of products that it's not really feasible for these big food companies or big cosmetics companies to invest in having really intense direct relationships like they would with wheat or corn. So they are, you know, working with a lot of different suppliers and sometimes working with extractors, not working with the farmers initially. And because all the vanilla is concentrated in certain areas, and, you know, one big cyclone like the one in 2017 in Madagascar can wipe out the market and cause you know, the the price to skyrocket, which brings in people who are just trying to make a quick buck. Um, and we should hear from Don about that as well. The problem with the, the volatility is you have these periods of high prices where traders show up with a suitcase full of cash and the farmers will tend to respond to that. And company programs rely on loyalty where you're investing in farmers and those farmers sell to you. And so when markets are stable or prices are moderate, farmers are usually pretty happy with that and companies are pretty happy with that. But when prices go really high and everybody's scrambling to get vanilla, it really undermines those long-term good relationships you're trying to build up. And, and that's the hard part. So farmers gain a little bit in the short term, but then things tend to unravel and they're left without that extension support and protection of being in a long-term relationship with buyers. So this cycle of boom and bust is what businesses are always trying to navigate. And basically what happens is there's a kind of a demand for all natural organic vanilla and it becomes a really popular trendy thing. And then companies start reformulating and decide to, you know, try and source um, all natural vanilla. But there's, you know, it takes three to four years for a vanilla pod to come to full harvest. So the farmers see that there's this new demand, but they're not sure if they want to invest in planting a bunch more vanilla. So the price goes up. So if the farmers do end up planting and investing in more vanilla, what by the time they're ready for harvest, those companies are like, oh, well, we can't continue to make vanilla, to make these vanilla products at this high a price. So they've reformulated and now there's an oversupply and now the farmers are you know, without the money that they had, they were planning on having. So this cycle happens over and over. And because brands don't deal directly with van- vanilla farmers, like I said before, because of, you know, not needing that much or also just working with extractors, they don't really know when the demand is going to go up and when it's going to go down. And so they're trying to create long lasting relationships in order to combat this, to prevent that boom and bust cycle. Yeah, I'm sure the vanilla farmer is three or four, or five or six or seven steps away from the actual brand that's 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 buying this vanilla. So, how are businesses responding to this challenge? 
Yeah, so Dawn is part of the Sustainable Vanilla Initiative, which has brought together almost 30 vanilla purchasers, including, and that includes about 70% of the market. And these are people like General Mills, Nestle, Unilever, Mars, McCormick. And they're basically hoping that they can negotiate and work together to solve these issues, you know, kind of have a combined power together. They can work with the Malagasy government to talk to them and, and just kind of negotiate all as one group. And that's really where the sustainability uh, initiative is coming from. Great story, Jesse. Lots more to come on, on this and probably other flavors. I mean, after vanilla, I assume, comes chocolate. Definitely. We've been talking a lot over the past year about net zero, this uh, audacious goal for companies, countries, and others to get to zero greenhouse gas emissions, or at least net zero. What does that mean? How is it done? It's an easy idea to grasp, but it's also an extraordinarily complicated effort for most companies and countries to, to engage in. And that's why we're putting on the uh, Verge Net Zero Conference the week after next on the 27th and 28th uh, of July, uh, free event. And uh, here to talk about that, give us a little uh, insight and preview of that is our Green Biz Food and Carbon Analyst, Jim Giles. Hey, Jim. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me on. So Net Zero, I mean, we get what that is, but uh, we have this, we put together this really amazing program, uh, nearly 40 sessions by my counts around 75 or so speakers what's the focus yeah thank you i mean we're super excited about this and i i guess there's multiple focuses really we kind of look at the journey to net zero comprising three components the first one is organizations have to figure out how to measure and disclose their emissions uh, which for any organization has done it will tell you that is much more complicated than it sounds but there are thankfully lots of structures and organizations out there to, to help organizations do that kind of carbon audit. So we'll be covering that. We'll then be looking at really the central part of the journey to net zero, which is reducing your organization's emissions. That's where it all has to start. Um, uh, it's all about hitting those ambitious targets for uh, the IPCC has laid down to halve emissions by 2030 and to get to net zero by 2050. And then the third component of that journey is how do we deal with those emissions that can't be eliminated? Almost all companies, or many companies at least, face uh, residual emissions right now they can't get rid of, employee travel from aviation, for example. And a lot of companies, as they look ahead to their future, see emissions that is going to be really tough to eliminate in the next decades, not, not just immediately. And so for those, we need to figure out some way for them to compensate through their emissions through um, some kind of carbon offset. And that's the third component of the journey that we'll be looking at. And throughout all this, there's this challenge of, of greenwash. Um, Al Gore last week spoke to, uh, to Fortune and, and talked about uh, how, you know, we have to be diligent and vigilant about the threat of greenwashing. And, and a lot of it is, is, is related to the kinds of claims that uh, net zero by 50, which is uh, one of, of many commitments, is net zero by 40, by 45, by 35, even net zero by 30. Um, how does that factor in? Uh, what are you seeing as, as uh, how do we address that, I guess, in this event? 
Yeah, this is such a critical question. And, uh, you know, I think there's been a lot of pushback against the idea of net zero. And broadly, I welcome that pushback from groups like Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace and Al Gore, as you said, because what it does is it holds us all to account. And that's really critical because there is a right way and a wrong way of doing net zero. And the wrong way includes things like saying, oh, we'll get to net zero by 2050, but here we are in, in 2021. So let's not worry too much about it. Um, another wrong way of doing it is to say, well, we can just get there using offsets. You know, I can buy my uh, questionably, you know, my, my offset of questionable quality for say $2 a ton. And I, I can just offset my way to neutrality and, 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 and that's all good. Uh, neither of those things are good. And one thing we'll be highlighting at the event is that if you follow best practice as laid down by the Science-Based Targets Initiative, your organization needs to halve its emissions by 2030. And you cannot do that by buying lots of offsets. It's all about looking in-house and making those cuts. So in, in the realm of looking at the technology, the policy, the finance, or just the corporate leadership, which of those is uh, sort of the biggest lever that needs to be pulled right now? Yeah, it's, you know, it's hard to disentangle all those things. And I'm tempted to say all of them, which is a cop out. So I, I won't do that. Um, I think leadership, if you have to sort of single out one thing, having the political and the corporate will behind change and having that come from the top is the number one thing. You know, having the C-suite say that they're committed to science-based targets um, they're going to build that into compensation at all levels or certainly at all levels of the company where it's practical to do so. They're going to commit to having that be a part of their supply chain sort of engagement and procurement policy, um, having them commit that to be part of their lobbying policy. So for just, just this morning, for example, I was reading a report pointing out there are many companies that are talking about net zero and actively lobbying for policies that take the country, the US, in the opposite direction. So what we need is corporate leadership, in fact, organizational leadership, because this goes beyond companies and applies to cities and all levels of government, that not just says we're committed to these really aggressive targets, but makes those targets an integral part of everything they do. And just this week, uh, the EU uh, announced this uh, Fit for 55 uh, uh, initiative that's really ambitious. Do you think that's going to be ramping up the pressure on U.S.-based companies? Yeah, certainly. I mean, one of the most interesting, controversial things about uh, the EU is talking about at this point is the border tax. Um, and this is the idea that if the EU companies make hard choices around emission cuts, which drive up the price of things like steel and cement, then companies within the EU shouldn't simply be able to buy higher carbon, but more expensive alternatives from other parts of the world. So those, those products, if they come in, are going to be subject to a border tax. Um, now, that raises all sorts of complicated questions and bring in organizations like the WTO. So who knows whether that's going to happen. But what I would say is just the fact that we're talking about this is really, really helpful because it means that executives all around the world are paying attention. No, no company wants to suddenly uh, be subjected to a border tax. So what it means is that all companies now will be thinking that might be coming down the line. So let's start thinking about our processes and figuring out how we can get to those lower carbon products now rather than be taxed in the future. So before I let you go, give us a little flavor. What are a session or two or a speaker or two that you're particularly excited about for next week? 
Oh, yeah, so many. So I would, you know, first of all, please go and check out the online program for the full list. Um, I, but a couple of things I'm super excited about. Just earlier this week, I was hanging out with uh, Debbie Raphael, who's the director of the uh, Department of Environment at San Francisco. We were filming a short video uh, down in the Mission District about some amazing work that's going on there just on one city block, which turns out to be a microcosm of all the things that cities need to, or many of the things that cities need to do to get to net zero. So that will, that video that we made there will be part of our keynote session. Um, we are also, uh, we have a great session that I've been organizing in collaboration with, with an organization called A New Energy Nexus looking at some of the innovative technologies that will accelerate our transition to net zero. That includes companies from all around the world. Um, and also I was just chatting this morning with one of our, our very final speakers that I'm confirming for a session called uh, about market leaders. And this is really about companies that are most advanced in their net zero journey and doing really pioneering, interesting work, not just cutting emissions, but um, introducing the concept of carbon labeling into their products, uh, working with their suppliers to drive down scope free emissions and things like that. So yeah, those are just a few of the highlights. And did we mention that the price for this event is free? Yes. Uh, I think that's particularly, <laughs> it's a net zero cost to you to attend next week's Verge Net Zero Conference. Uh, thank you so much for putting this together. Jim Giles is our food and carbon analyst at Green Biz Group and the maven behind Verge Net Zero happening next week online. Check it out. Uh, just go to greenbiz.com. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Joe. In March, logistics and delivery giant FedEx committed to achieving carbon neutral operations by 2040. To help get there, it's investing $2 billion in vehicle electrification, sustainable energy, and carbon sequestration. Joining me on GreenBiz 350 to discuss some of those plans in more detail is Mitch Jackson, Chief Sustainability Officer. Hey, Mitch. Hey, Heather. How are you? Great. FedEx has set a goal of having its entire pickup and delivery fleet be composed of zero emissions vehicles by the year we're talking about, 2040. Can you provide a sense of the current composition? So in other words, what does that look like now? Well, we have about 3,000 electric vehicles in the fleet currently, Heather. Um, it's been a years long program. Uh, we've actually been working with all electrics uh, for over 10 years. We worked with hybrid electrics even longer than that, going back to a project that we did in the early 2000s with Environmental Defense Fund. But uh, but it's been a it's been a great deal of work. It's been a great deal of uh, satisfaction in that process. And I think what we're seeing now is we're seeing the inflection point for electrification in the uh, commercial vehicle sector, and that's why we were able to uh, take the take the leap into setting a goal for all electric parcel pickup and delivery fleet uh, by 2040. So when, can you be a little clearer about what that means? I mean, these, we're talking um, vans, trucks, et cetera. Can you, can you provide more clarity on the, this, these, these vehicles themselves? Absolutely. Um, typically, the parcel pickup delivery uh, vehicle is the walk-in vehicle that you see, the ubiquitous truck you see from FedEx uh, each and every day delivering our customers' goods. Uh, it's not the over-the-road big tractor-trailer class eight vehicles but those vocational vehicles that are in the medium duty uh, size of, of vehicles. And that's been our focus over the past decade. 
with respect to that aspect of our operations because of the range requirements, uh, the load requirements, and the and the like, and the fact that they are centrally fueled, right? Those are centrally fueled vehicles in our facilities themselves. And so we've always felt that they were ideal candidates for electrification uh, as it relates to our operations. And so that's why we were uh, uh, focused on those. And that's why we made the, uh, the goal. Uh, and by the way, that goal, not, not only is it 100% penetration of zero emission electric vehicles in that parcel pick and delivery fleet by 2040, uh, but in our FedEx Express unit where we own those vehicles, we have interim goals as well. So 50% of the acquisitions in 2025 will be electric, and then 100% of the acquisitions in 2030. And that lets us phase those vehicles in for that 2040 uh, timeframe. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you talk about the, what the vehicles you own, do you not own some of them? Are you leasing some of them? Is that part of what's going on here too? Right. Some of our vehicles uh, are owned by independent service providers, such as in FedEx Ground. Uh, uh, interestingly, and it's worth noting, that our carbon neutral goal for 2040 includes those scope three emissions from contracted transportation. So it includes scope one, direct emissions, scope two, purchased electricity, and scope three as it relates to contract transportation. The electrification goal for the parcel pickup and delivery fleet also includes the vehicles in those contractor operations as well. Hmm. Okay. Do you disclose the entire uh, number of vehicles in the fleet? Is that something? Uh, well, we have, uh, we do in our citizenship report that has now been titled the ESG report. Uh, we have over 200,000 on road and off road vehicles, uh, approximately. Uh, and uh, more than half of those vehicles, well, more than half of those vehicles are in that parcel uh, pickup and delivery uh, operation or class of vehicles. And then do you, uh, and you mentioned that you're, you're, you've been slowly chipping away at, at, getting that number up for the zero emissions, do you disclose what they are right now? Like, is this a big leap to 2040 that you're talking about? Absolutely. We have over 3,000 uh, electric vehicles in the fleet right now. Uh, we've worked with a number of different manufacturers in that space, uh, startups primarily. And as I said earlier, this, this inflection point that we're seeing, though, is coming about because major manufacturers are getting into the space so GM announced in February that they were um, creating the Bright Drop commercial electric delivery vehicle, uh, of which FedEx is the launch customer. Uh, so we will get uh, the initial uh, vehicles uh, from Bright Drop, uh, from the GM Bright Drop program starting later this year. And, uh, and then Ford has also announced that they're doing electric vehicles as well. And so that's where we think that this inflection point has, uh, has started with respect to the commercialization of commercial electric vehicles. So that 2040 is, that's a long time away. What specific short-term initiatives will will really contribute? Like, and, and can you give us a window into maybe the next couple of years? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, you know, uh, in early May, uh, we issued a, a sustainability bond for, uh, for FedEx. It was the uh, first sustainability bond by a North American transportation logistics provider. Uh, and, we raised money for the electrification component of what we were trying to do here. And so we will be investing initially 
in the electric infrastructure for those vehicles, the charging infrastructure for those vehicles, uh, and then and then the purchase of those vehicles as well. As a matter of fact, in the framework for that sustainability bond, we said green transportation was was a majority of the the spend, if you will, with respect to the proceeds of that bond issuance. Um, We've been working on this. We've got uh, 40-something stations in California. We've been electrifying uh, over 500 chargers installed over the last year or so. Um, and, and that's where that work has, has begun. But we will continue that work. And, and we actually, rather than public chargers for these vehicles, we are installing the charging infrastructure in our facilities because it's an ideal situation in that those vehicles come in late in the evening and park, and then they don't go out again until the early morning hours. And so we're able to charge those vehicles in that time frame um, that we have. As a matter of fact, uh, Russ Musgrove in our FedEx Express vehicle uh, operation, who's overseeing the, the work in, in, uh, in FedEx Express, uh, I think has, has talked to GreenBiz about some of the, the ideal situations in that in the, in the past and, and how it's a, just an ideal candidate for that particular application. Yes, yeah, so you mentioned some of those technologies as well as some of the OEMs that are going to help you get there. Can you be more specific about what types of technologies will really be instrumental in making this leap? Um, other things, for example, that, that could be attached to a vehicle to, to get the emissions um, lower in order to get them electrified more quickly? Well, let me talk about, for instance, over-the-road class eights for just a moment, then I'll come back to, to the to the parcel pickup delivery fleet. You know, we don't see uh, a clear uh, road map for the electrification at this point for over-the-road class eights. Uh, we think that that's possibly a combination of uh, technologies in the nearer term uh, that inc could include uh, after-treatment devices. It could include other zero-emission technologies, alternative fuels, alternative technologies, and the like. Uh, but ultimately, we hope they get to the electrification ranges that are uh, needed by over-the-road trucking as well. With respect to parcel pickup and delivery fleet, it's candidly issues around scaling, range, charging infrastructures were always on the table with respect to the challenges therein. Range is uh, being addressed quite well. Scalability is being addressed. And now what we're left with, frankly, is the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure issues. And so we are in the process of, as I said, of putting in infrastructure for charging, primarily uh, level two chargers uh, into our operations. But there is going to be uh, a challenge and, and a need for utilities to be able to address and to be able to handle the, the, the vast uh, increase in charging needs uh, by electric vehicles, not only in the commercial vehicle side, but in the passenger light duty side as well. And so I think that there's, um, I think there's clearly innovation that is uh, needed there. So it's not just the vehicle innovations, it's the charging itself. They, in, in essence, the fueling infrastructure uh, that, that's necessary as well. And I think what's interesting for us is that you know, we always had these challenges uh, that we were looking at over the last 10 years. We think that we're, we're starting to solve some of them and we're focused now on the infrastructure piece of it. That's encouraging. That's an encouraging development with respect to uh, where the technology has been, where the technology is going, and ultimately where it will be. I have a couple more questions for you, but before we leave this, what about batteries? 
Well, I think that that's the innovation I was talking about is, is a case in point with respect to batteries. Uh, the range has, has increased quite, uh, uh, quite well, quite, quite a great bit. To give you an idea for a typical par- parcel pickup delivery vehicle, we need about 150 miles of range to have the cushion for to, to be able to do our operations uh, on a daily basis, day in and day out. Um, that gives us that range. We're going to get that with respect to these vehicles. Now, with batteries for ranges of five to 600 miles that you need for over-the-road trucking, it's not there yet. Uh, it's clearly not there yet. And you have an issue around payload trade-offs, right? Uh, the battery weights versus the, the, the cargo that you're carrying as well. Uh, so clearly batteries with respect to long-haul trucking um, uh, still has work to be done. Uh, but for the vocational centralized fuel vehicles that travel set routes or generally set routes each and every day, the technology you know we feel is there. And now it's just a, uh, a just the process of uh, scaling the commercialization of those vehicles to get those vehicles produced in the volumes that are needed, not only by FedEx, but other fleets as well. Your fleet strategy also deals with things with wings. So what's the goal? What's the goal for the aircraft fleet? Well, aviation is a particularly challenging industry sector as it relates to net zero or zero emission operations. You know, for years we've had operations or or, uh, approaches going with respect to our operations, including sustainable aviation fuel development, um, operational improvements in our um, in, in efficiencies. Uh, and also asset replacement, aircraft modernization. So we've been reporting for a number of years uh, with respect to both the aircraft modernization and our operational improvements, a program, by the way, we call FuelSense, S-E-N-S-E, about the amount of carbon and fuel that are are saved uh, and avoided um, with respect to those operations. And then we've got, uh, we have initiatives underway to try to develop sustainable aviation fuels. The issue for us and what we've seen though, is that those solutions alone are not going to get the aviation industry to a zero carbon world uh, in the foreseeable future. And so we have announced that we're giving Yale University $100 million to establish the Yale Center for Natural Carbon Capture. And the idea for that is to find ways to sequester vast amounts of carbon using natural processes, right? Biological, geological, and industrial processes that equate to the amount of emissions that the aviation industry emits on an annual basis. Well, at least the amount of emissions that they emitted pre-pandemic. So it's not just about FedEx emissions, it's about the aviation industry itself uh, as a whole. And the idea is to try to find these ways to to sequester carbon in in this large capacity process while we let technology continue to do its magic to catch up so that you can get those technologies for aviation as well. And we just have felt that you needed that in addition to those operational and technological improvements that were being made now in order to help get you to that zero carbon future of 2040 or 2050. And so basically it's, if you'll excuse the metaphor, we're trying to hit on all cylinders with respect to this particular issue um, so that we can 
we can make sure that we are putting all the resources and all the intellectual prowess that we can into help solving what candidly is an intractable problem for the industry. One quick final question. What advice would you give to other fleet organizations about what to do or what not to do? I, I think it's a combination of a number of issues. Um, you know, I, I spoke to Green Biz uh, many years ago and said that, and, and, and we were talking about the approach that VEDEX has with respect to sustainability. Uh, and I said it was a reduce, replace, revolutionize strategy. So you reduce or eliminate the emissions or impacts from your operations. You find the right solutions and put them in the right applications. And then you find the solutions of tomorrow and start implementing them today. And I think the key for us and for any other fleet operation, and, and to be honest with you, any company that, that has a, an environmental footprint, is that we, you need to be working on all of these pieces concurrently in order to be able to, um, to, be able to address this issue, this you know, overwhelming issue for society at large, you, you need to be focused on, on reducing your, uh, your impacts now, putting the solutions in that will help you get there, and then be working diligently on those solutions of tomorrow. Because, you know, as we, as pretty much is the case, every overnight sensation takes years of preparation, uh, practice, and application uh, in order to, uh, to ultimately succeed. And, and I think that that's been a key to what we've been able to do. I mean, for instance, over the last decade, our volumes have doubled. But our carbon intensity on a revenue basis has dropped by 40%. So now that we still have a lot of work to do with respect to uh, that carbon neutral goal for global operations by 2040. But the fact of it is, is that by using that approach uh, of reduce, replace, revolutionize um, over that last 10 years, we've been able to do a lot. We have a lot more to do, but I think that's a key uh, for, uh, for helping to get to a zero carbon future for all of us. Thank you so much, Mitch, for joining us. Heather, it's great to be with you in Green Biz today. You just heard from Mitch Jackson, the Chief Sustainability Officer for FedEx. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish seven of them every week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to learn more about them. We welcome your comments, your questions, your tips. We just love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Thanks to Jesse Klein for stepping in to co-host this week. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com.